Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. I don't think you'll catch up with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Probably not, but I don't care. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is something I love in the background whilst I'm doing work. Hmm. I don't care about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I only watch it because I want to watch all of it. Because you're a completist. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because of the way they're doing the whole Marvel thing. I'm only watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to watch the whole Marvel thing. I like Melinda. Melinda May. I just don't like it. I like the cavalry. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is only good when it's got a movie to bounce off. Or when ming in it a lot. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was alright. And then it got really bull, uh, dull. And then Captain America 2 happened and then it was alright. And, and then it was exciting again. It just got a bit dull again. And then it got a bit dull again. There's not a lot you can do about that, is there? True. Anyway, should we do, should we do something? Seeing as we're recording. Okay. Just something, anything. Anything, yeah. Come on, my honey, come on, my baby, come on, my If you want to sing for five minutes, <laughs> entertain the nation in, in that way, yeah, okay. it's certainly, I can put my feet up and go and carry on doing something else if you want. I can watch iZombie, or this week's Flash. Okay. You, you just sing. Right, okay. I'll be back in 40 minutes. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. You're not going this show this week. No, no, you usually trip over me when I do that. Oh, well, I didn't. I left a gap this week and you didn't do it. No. Truncate silence. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do we have anything interesting to say? I don't know. No, we don't really. Nothing's happening this week. Oh, Daredevil happened. That was a thing. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's watched it by now. Yeah, yeah. It was good. I enjoyed it. Thoroughly enjoyed Daredevil. Still not seen it. You not watched it all? No. I'm saving it until after Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which I'm saving Why? for after Agent Carter. What? <laughs> Because if I watch everything now... You'll have nothing to watch later. It'll be all incoherent. I'll be mixing everything up. I like my things non-linear, but when it comes to TV shows... You're a freak. Agent Carter's good, though. You're in the middle of Agent Carter at the minute. I've got three episodes left. I've just seen the one with Dum Dum Dugan. I was was mightily impressed by Agent Carter's uh, Mm -hmm. screen presence. Well, yeah. That's what we're calling it. Yeah. No, I liked Agent Carter. It's a good mm. show. I very much enjoyed it. Uh, so we'll just leap into an email. Like Gabriel Jimenez has emailed in again. Hey, kids. I like that. Yeah. Uh, just wanted to drop a quick line. I heard the two episodes mentioned in the subject line, which were the goodies and it's something good. Uh, one after another and, as usual, enjoyed them. Change of pace. It was nice listening to you guys just talk about issues. No major storyline or crossover or even thematic link. It's always interesting seeing your picks of books to go over. I should mention that I haven't actually had a chance to read any of the issues that were covered, aside from the Endless Nights short story. Although, funnily enough, I was looking around at Amazon and found a Spider-Man Captain Britain Marvel Universe Greatest Battles comic pack. I've seen that in Forbidden Planet. Was it a really, was it really a great battle? Well, that, that's what Gabriel says. Does it really qualify as Greatest <laughs> Battle? 
Greatest battle in an alleyway against a garbage truck. They missed that bit off the packaging. Ah, right. But in that case... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that qualifies. Pretty cool figures, though. Overall, it seems like Andy's issues were fun in an old-school kind of way. The Iron Man and Doctor Strange issues especially got my attention. I have noticed that I have very few Iron Man issues in my collection and hardly any from the period you covered, which is surprising considering Michelini and Leighton are considered classic artists and writers. With Doctor Strange, I neither possess nor have actually ever read anything from his series pre-1990. I think he's a very interesting, very cool-looking character. I feel I should be more aware of his early periods. You mentioned the recent announcement of the Doctor Strange movie, and that makes me excited. You mentioned the Oath, and whilst I hope that a movie keeps that storyline's wit and sense of fun, it is also able to incorporate the character's background and history. As mentioned, I have only read Endless Night, so I can attest the beautiful artwork and haunting story. I'm a huge fan of Gaiman in general, and Sandman specifically, so I'm pretty stoked whenever you guys pick out an issue of Sandman. Just a quick comment on Minara's Spider-Woman cover. I don't think the cover was offensive, but did think it was in bad taste, specifically because it was plain ugly, plus the anatomy's all wonky. I think it does come off as exploitative in a way, so much focus is put on the butt that it draws attention from the rest of the piece. I know that men are also drawn overly muscled or in an, in an unrealistic manner, but I think it more fulfils a male fantasy than be exploitative. I think in general we should encourage any actions that make comics more inclusive, that make female readers more welcome, and if a cover or artwork like that one strikes a nerve, they do have the right to make their opinion heard, and Marvel or any other publisher should decide on how to act. Well, that seems very reasonable yes, to me. I don't, I don't think either of us were particularly arguing that it was Manura's best work. No, by I any was more arguing the controversy surrounding it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, his artwork in that Sandman was beautiful. Mm. It was an absolutely beautiful piece of art. The Spider-Woman cover, eh, not so much. No, and the part of it, I feel like it's a bit of a shame that now that that's happened, that is the first... Thing that comes up when you Google it. No, 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 that was the first in what I hope won't become a series of unfortunate events. Because <laughs> after this, the Paul Raphael Albuquerque's Batwoman, Batgirl variant... Because apparently it was um, offensive. I, I didn't read that people thought it was offensive. Because the cover in and of itself, the Batgirl one that you're on about, mm. the cover in and of itself is perfectly fitting in the tone of the New 52. Yeah. The, the creators of the comic argue that they didn't feel it was tonally correct for the comic they were doing. Well, and felt that it shouldn't be published. Have you actually read the arguments that people were commenting about? I, I pay no attention whatsoever to people's arguments about it. Well, fair enough. I, I won't get into it too much, but some of the arguments that were being used against it I thought were ridiculous, and I just thought that what happened with the Minera cover was suddenly they gave in and broke. So since they pulled that cover, why can't they pull this cover? Mm. And since there was no reason to pull the Batgirl one, as a variant. It just kind of seems like... It, it would only happen those two times, and it might not happen again, but with the Batgirl one in particular... Probably will. It seems like, because of what happened with Marvel and Minera, comics are now giving in and pandering to people if they complain loud enough. Yeah, I mean, on the one, the Batgirl one was a variant cover, so it so was only going -Woman? to a, a specific segment of the audience. And people have argued, well, they only withdrew it after the internet kicked up a force. Mm. 
and they were saying, well, why doesn't editorial know what they were doing? But sometimes the variant covers, apparently, yeah. are commissioned by marketing, right. not by editorial. Yeah. So if that's true, it is entirely possible that the creative team of Batgirl did not see that cover but it was until everybody else did. Albuquerque, you did the standard cover as well. Well, even the artist for that, though. This is the bit I didn't get. The artist for that cover. Was that Albuquerque? Mm. The Batgirl cover. The artist for that said that, no, they were right to pull it. It wasn't suitable for that comic. So what did he think he was drawing a cover for? It was the Joker anniversary. So he presumably never actually read Batgirl then to know what the tone of that comic was. No, it was Because surely you would have gone, maybe this isn't suitable for that, then. What it was, was the entire Batman line... Yeah, was celebrating the Joker's 75th birthday. So every one of them, so what he went in to do was, he's doing it for Batgirl, Mm. so take the biggest, most influential and iconic moment in the Joker and Batgirl's history and add Rightly or wrongly. Yeah, and make that combination of current Batgirl Mm. and killing Joke Joker. Hmm. So it makes perfect sense from a variant cover that celebrates the history of the Joker. Yeah. In, for the Batgirl title. But when you start having complaints that it's suggestive of rape and uh, like that, which personally, I could be wrong, kind of seems I like didn't get that. Kind of seems like you're cover. stretching it a bit too far. Hmm. See, I but didn't I didn't get that from that cover. But my mind doesn't automatically go to he's going to rape her. Yeah. But once again, my opinion, I don't think that if you that a, co- a cover should be pulled because a lot of people are stretching it a bit too far, and another comic company pandered to an audience who were a bit loud. Well, so did the Spider Woman cover never see print? No, and the Batgirl one won't either. No, right? Okay, fair enough. That's fine. I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with the people who got offended. I disagree with the companies who pulled them. Right. Okay. See, I don't, and I don't disagree with what Gabriel says. If if they really genuinely did not think it was suitable for their cover, they have the right to say, I don't think that should be the cover of the comic I'm working on. Yeah. But ultimately, it is DC's decision. And if DC decided to pull it, then DC decided to pull it. Whether they were pandering, whether they were afraid of the backlash, whatever. Yeah. But it didn't see print, so there you go. But yeah, it is a, it is a variant aiming at a specific market. Mm. But... I don't know how much water that argument holds when the only market for comic now is comic book stores. Yeah. You see, back in the day when you would buy comics like I would from newsagents and such, Mm. the special editions would only go to comic book stores if they even did variants back then. Yeah. Whereas now the only place to buy your comics is in a comic book store. So how can you, as a retailer, make sure that that cover does not get seen by a 12-year-old girl who likes reading Batgirl? You can't, can you? Um, no. You can't do that. So that's where the whole variant cover aimed at a specific market thing falls down. Because there is no other market anymore. Yeah. Other than digital. Also, it was um, a solicitation. Mm. A solicitation, as we all know, come out three months before the issue's released. Yeah. So, essentially, you complained about an image mm. on the internet mm. that hasn't actually been printed yet... With it being only solicitation, you can't argue that a young girl would see it, but a young girl can't see it when it's only a solicitation. Well, she can see the solicitation, but you're only seeing it as a thumbnail thing, yeah, unless yeah. you can click on it and embiggen it. I don't, I don't know, I don't think there's any easy answer to this. I think the thing that you've got at the minute is comic books, or certainly comic book characters, are now 
more popular than they have ever been. Mm. You can't walk around at the minute and not see at least one person in any given day wearing some paraphernalia that is comic boot related. Yeah. You know, just walking down from the gym the other day, there was a kid wearing a Captain America t-shirt, and as I crossed over, there was a Spider-Man bobblehead in the car that I was walking in front of. Mm. That's in one five-minute walk. Yeah. Two examples of comic book related stuff. One of my friends has got Batman on every item of her clothing. See? And so, as a comic book reader, I want this to trickle down to the comics. Yeah. Because I want the comics to sell better. Whether or not I think that the material that is being published in some of those comics is going to make people want to read them more, having seen the Marvel movies, I don't think that it will. Because hmm. I don't think the material matches the movies. But that's irrelevant discussion. So you want those people that go and see Age of Ultron, or have watched Daredevil, yeah. on Netflix or whatever, to go and buy the comics. So we want a more inclusive and wider audience. Otherwise, comics will die. That's your bottom line. Yeah, yeah. You only have to look at the best, the best-selling era of your comic books is when it was appealed to everybody and when they were available everywhere. Mm. And if we want to get back to that, then maybe focusing on images such as women in situations where they may, may be potentially being raped, whether that's what you saw or not. Because yeah. I don't read that in The Killing Joke. My mind never went to the Joker raped her as well as taking pictures of I her in The Killing Joke. you're complaining that that's what it's saying then the problem's with you and not the material it is entirely possible you're seeing something in the art that the artist never intended but as we've said before the last person that you ask what is this about is the artist, is the artist. Yeah. because frequently they're so close to it that they can't see what it's about hmm. and I don't I honestly don't think there's anything wrong with making comics appeal to a wider more mainstream audience while still being as good as some of them are at the minute. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm. We're always banging on about how we want comics to be selling 250,000 copies of Spider-Man again. Yeah. Back in the day, Marvel sold 1 million copies of the three Spider-Man books. Amazing sold 500,000, Spectacular and Marvel Team Up sold 250,000 each. They sold a million copies a month of the three Spider-Man books. Yeah. The only things that are selling like that at the minute are Star Wars. So I don't see anything wrong. And if by doing that they have to remove a couple of covers, so be it. But no. when you've got another venue for selling that variant cover, yeah. if you can guarantee only comic book fans and collectors are going to go into that comic book store and see that cover, then fine. Forget. Hmm. Print what you want. As long as my 14-year-old daughter is not going to be exposed to one of these bizarre variant covers. But even with that, there was nothing on that Spider-Girl cover I wouldn't have wanted Anya to see. She yeah. may have looked at it and gone, her head's at a funny angle. Mm. But there was nothing inherently offensive, I thought, in the actual picture. Um, I agree with Gabriel. It wasn't Milo Minera's best work by a long chalk, and yeah. the anatomy was wonky. Yeah. And as an example of his art... It wasn't the best. It's a piss-poor example of his fantastic artwork. Yeah. And I think it's a shame now that that's what he's associated with, instead of the truly great work that he's done that he should be associated with. I mean, yes, there's an awful lot of nudity in it, but so what? Yeah, and I completely agree we should be opening up to bigger audiences. Um, it's just, I don't believe these should be pulled. If you look back through every single comic, the way Batgirl was portrayed isn't anything new. I would argue you can go back to the Silver and Bronze Age and she was never portrayed in a sexual manner. She wasn't... I, Batgirl... Batgirl wasn't. No. Exactly, yeah. She never was. And I, still, I don't... She isn't, Neither was Supergirl. She isn't portrayed in a sexual way on that cover. 
No, but I think wasn't there an argument that this was him terrorising a woman? But if, but yeah. again, this goes back to what you were saying. He was homaging the killing joke. Yeah. Word that happens. Now, if you're going to bitch about it, maybe you should bitch about the killing joke. Yeah, I, I know I wasn't born then, but um, I don't remember anyone complaining. Maybe that's because Tumblr never existed. But anyway... No, um, no, you know what it was? We were all just too busy falling over ourselves to kiss Alan Moore's ass yeah. and say, look, comics are for adults. Yeah. And now, 20-odd years later, we've actually realised that that's not necessarily a good thing. Well, the argument then was comics are for adults, now it's comics are for women. But no, um, no, it should be comics are for everyone. Yeah, but but not every comic is, is for, for everyone. Yeah, um, but I, I agree. We should be opening up to wider audiences. It's just um, I, I'm doing my art course at college. I have a specific teacher who tells me to be, be shocking. Yeah, go push the boundaries. He direct, he said to me, direct quote: "I want you to piss off everyone in your class with your art project." <laughs> You, you know, it's about. He wants you to be Mark Miller. Yeah, because it comes down to it's better to have. It's better to offend people than people not care about your work. Hmm. And that all comes Mark down. Miller. Yeah, and that all comes down to the viewer. As an artist, if you have a message, you convey it. Doesn't matter how or in what form, but you convey that message. Hmm. And in fact, the more shocking, the better, because then you're making your audiences think. What is the norm? What's acceptable in a society and all that? Then it makes the audience think. So sometimes more shocking can be better. But that's so, the point, though, isn't it? Neither the Spider-Woman or Spider-Girl or whatever it was, all the Batgirl cover were shocking. No, exactly. So we are now gone... We've gone backwards. We're not asking ourselves what is right anymore, what's acceptable... What is suitable for this particular project that we're working on? Yeah. You're not going to write a Dennis the Menace comic with the with the the editorial goal of being shocking. No, exactly. You're going to write a Dennis the Menace comic that appeals to kids. You you write for your fan base, of course, and it, or your readership more than your fan base. Yeah, but say writing for your fan base has got comics where they are now. Yeah, but say um, the, the the Batgirl did see print. It did see the light of day. It's in comic shops. So then it all comes down with. You can't blame DC if your little girl sees that cover because before then you've got the parent yourself. Hmm. Okay, what your child sees, the yeah. majority of it comes down to you. Sorry Secondly, to interrupt before you go into your second about that. Also, no twelve-year-old will look at that comic and go, "The Joker's raping Batgirl." Yeah, because the child won't. Well, most children, most twelve-year-old girls won't look yeah. at that and go, "That that the Joker is raping Batgirl." So then that's men or women. Elder men or women yeah. finding offence in something that children would look at and not see anything wrong with. Yeah. And secondly, after the parent, you've then got the comic company. Where the comics place is up to... The retailer. The, the comic company. You don't go into a news No, it's up to the retailer. Yeah. It's the retailer's job to position that variant cover if it is considered dubious or not to be seen by young people then it's the retailer's job to make sure that he's not seen by those people. That's not DC's job. Yeah. No, no, DC, that's what I'm DC are quite clearly publishing that as a variant cover. That's what I'm saying. After the parent, it comes to the shop where the comics right, are. Let's ask you another question then. Had this furrow not happened, mm -hmm. and that uh, those variant covers had seen print and just been put on a shelf somewhere, do you think anyone would care? No. It comes back to the killing joke. No one kicked up a fuss about it, because so no one again, saw rape we about were, it. We were too busy falling over ourselves People, and marvelling uh, at comics yeah. being for adults. All right, fair enough. Well, I think we went off a tangent, though. We did.
And because of that, we've not got any time to do any more emails. So we'll leave that for next week. And those me trying never to controversial. I don't think you were being controversial. That's, that's, that's part of my argument again. Yeah, is that, so, just by opening a dialogue about this is now controversial. I'm telling you, Tumblr. I'm, I don't go on Tumblr. No, I know you don't, but that is entirely it. The so, so of, basically, you've put me off going on Tumblr. Yeah, no, it's, I'm sure it's a fine website and there's a lovely people on there, but the people who are bad just make it horrible. So we'll plug a show... And we'll be right back. In 1939, Timely Comics published its first issues. It later changed its name, first to Atlas Comics and then to Marvel Comics. In 2014, Marvel polled its fans asking for the 75 greatest Marvel stories from those 75 years and published that list in print form. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels countdown will walk through all 75 of these stories every Wednesday from December 31st, 2014 to June 1st, 2016. Join me, Blaine Dowler, and a cadre of other hosts, including established podcasting greats and emerging talents, as we run through the list, discuss each story in the context of its original release, and determine just what makes it so great. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown can be found at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. Dave Stevens, the Rocketeer, has a long and complex publishing history. Originally seeing print as a backup feature in Mike Grell's Star Slayer from Pacific Comics in 1982, the strip was then promoted to its own feature in Pacific Presents. The demise of Pacific in 1984 meant the final part of the serial was published by Eclipse Comics in 1985 and was swiftly followed by a deluxe edition collection of the entire series. Eclipse ceased publishing in 1986, which saw the sequel, Cliff's New York Adventure, see print at Comic Co. Comics in 1988 and 1989. They too went under in 1990, so the final chapter of the second serial finally saw print, again with a collected edition, in 1995, this time from Dark Horse Comics. It was only when IDW Publications secured the rights to the property that a complete collection of both serials, with revamped colouring by Laura Martin, saw the light of day. Sadly, this was published in 2009, a year after Stephen's death, although he was involved with the reprinting and gave Martin access to his original colour guides. Dave Stevens was born in 1955 and cut his teeth working with Russ Manning on the Tarzan newspaper strips, which, according to his biography in Pacific Presents Issue 2, led to him ghosting the Star Wars newspaper strip for a while. He then moved to animation, where he worked on Spider-Man, Flash Gordon, Godzilla and the Lone Ranger, as well as providing storyboards for Raiders of the Lost Ark before developing The Rocketeer. The Rocketeer is a series that wears its influences on its sleeve. First and foremost is the pulp adventure strips and cinema serials of the 30s and 40s. Echoes of Doc Savage and Dick Tracy can be keenly felt throughout, not least from the time period setting. Secondly, the titular hero owes more than a passing nod to the 1949 cliffhanger serial King of the Rocket Men, a serial I remember enjoying greatly when it was screened by the BBC over the Christmas holidays in 1981. Thirdly, and perhaps most memorably to readers of a certain age, the central character Cliff Secord's girlfriend, Betty, was clearly influenced by 40s pin-up girl Betty Page, albeit with different spellings of her name. 
Before the final issue of Dave Stevens' Rocketeer saw print in 1995, the strip was adapted into a film in 1991. As with the comic, the writers changed the spelling of Betty's name, and by change the spelling, I meant gave her a completely different name, Jenny. Fortunately, she was played by the pitch-perfect Jennifer Connelly, and Connelly was but the first example of perfect casting put forth by this film, a hugely underrated and magnificently entertaining slice of comic book cinema that does seem to have been forgotten, but was itself very influential on the Iron Man and Captain America movies. The only thing I remember that movie is the guy falling into the Hollywood landslide. Did you not watch the movie recently? Not recently. No. I think it really it in, stands up. In fact, for the longest time, I genuinely believed that that's why it's just Hollywood. Because that guy crashed into it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I think the film's great. I think Billy Campbell's brilliant as Cliff, and Timothy Dalton's brilliant as the bad guy. Mm. I like the film a lot, and I think it really holds up. And you can see the influence of it on Captain America the First Adventure. Yeah. Not least Joe Johnston being the director of both of them. Right. But it is quite clear that yeah, that Rocketeer film, that was good that, even though it didn't make any money. It was beaten by Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. (laughs) (laughs) Robin Hood, played by an American in his forties who doesn't even attempt to do a British accent. Right. If you're getting paid that much money, at least Russell Crowe at least attempted the accent. He didn't do a good job with it. <laughs> but he attempted. But at least he tried. Bless him. Bless his little <laughs> cotton socks. The first Rocketeer story has been published in numerous formats over the years, but the absolute best, in my opinion, is the Jetpack Treasury Edition from IDW, printed in 2011. Fitting in with the old-time feel, the cover is a grayscale shot of the Rocketeer in what looks like a photo album. It's probably no coincidence that the logo is coloured the same as the logo to the Indiana Jones movies. Hmm. What do you think of the cover? How did you not notice that? Look, the Rocketeer is Razor the Lost Art. Yeah, yeah. Quite a nice touch, though. Yeah. Do you like the cover? Yeah. It's nice. I like the whole, the feel of it being a, a photo album. I think that's yeah. quite, I like that a great deal. There's a full page reproduction of an ad from Star Slayer issue one, the first printed appearance of the Rocketeer in the opening splash of this edition. The copy from the top has been removed, but it's, it's really nice to see it in oversized format like that. Here's excitement dished out in brutal chunks, back when the teeth of justice bit deep into the throat of crime. Come on! <laughs> That's cereal all over it. The Rockety is like a big... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Symbolic. That's yeah. it. Big symbolic picture. Yeah, Betty just seems to be the... Why people get shot around her. I like how he's symbolic, but the guy's hiding behind his leg. Yeah. So I thought that was quite cool. April 1938. The Chaplain Eridome. A police siren wails as it pursues two felons who sped into the hangar of one Cliff Seacord. Before they can ditch the car and flee in Cliff's stubby plane, the police apprehend them, but they stash a package in the cockpit. They are hauled away by the police, and Cliff checks his plane to ensure it's okay for tomorrow's show. Cliff finds the package and opens it, revealing a top-secret government jetpack capable of reaching 200 miles per hour. Cliff takes it to his friend and mechanic, Peavy, who urges Cliff to hand it in. Cliff appeals to Peavy. He needs this to make some quick money to impress his girl, Betty, whose tastes have become expensive since hanging her out with this Hollywood crowd she's fell in with. Peavy understands the pull of Cliff's libido and makes a helmet with a fin for better aerodynamics and useful facial coverage. 
The next day, Cliff is running late and an old lush, Malcolm, has took his plane up in his stead. Malcolm is three sheets to the wind, so Cliff dons the pack and the helmet and zooms into the sky to prevent Malcolm killing himself, or worse, wrecking his plane. Sadly, the plane is careening towards the water tower, so Cliff has only one chance to pull Malcolm out and fly them both to safety. He does so, but it leaves him hurt and winded. He drops Malcolm off and then sputters back towards the hangar where he passes out, his fall broken by cardboard boxes. He is picked up by a strange man who orders him to remove the helmet and get into the car. The strange man is a fed, as Cliff finds out, when he and the G-men are run off the road by German spies. Cliff fights back and escapes, returning to Peavy and Betty who found the helmet with blood on it and have been worried ever since. Cliff returns home and spills to Peavy and Betty, throw a strop over Cliff being an asshole. Cliff makes up with Betty and asks Peavy to fix the jetpack. The next day, some gorillas are sneaking around the hangar looking for you-know-what, and they grab Betty for no reason that I could determine. Cliff boards the blind bulldog, an old bucket of bolts plane held together by spit and a dose of luck, and he manages to force them off the road, whilst the spectators at the air show think this is all a routine. The Germans disappear into the crowd, but one of them is snatched. The German officer has been snatched by the feds and he spills about their plans to steal the Cirrus X-3 rocket engine and Cliff Secord's name. Speaking of Secord, PV is giving him the lowdown on how to use the pack thanks to the convenient instruction sheet. Later, Cliff returns home to find two men, a distinguished looking gentleman and an ape, waiting for him. He says he'll take them to the jetpack, which Peavy has, but manages to ditch them on the way. The two men go to the address Cliff gave them, but it turns out that it's Betty's apartment, where she's in the middle of a glamour shoot. She's not impressed and tells Cliff so, as the two men make their way to Peavy's. Cliff runs for it with the jetpack, but he hides in the car the two-man bundle Peavy into, and they head to the airfield where they discover an experimental new plane. The Locust has been stolen whilst being readied for its test flight. PV says that the two men are working for the guy who built the jetpack, and the only way they may not be looking at jail time is if Cliff gets the Locust back. Cliff is reticent, but before a decision can be made, an armed man tells them to get out of the car. The man orders Cliff to give up the jetpack or face life in prison, but Cliff, rather stubbornly, decides to prove he ain't no crook by continuing to steal the jetpack. This is logic somewhere. He zooms into the sky after the Locust, but the man simply shakes his head and asks... Did either of you two bozos check the fuel supply? Cliff, out of earshot, didn't check the fuel supply, and the jetpack sputters out and he starts free-falling. Turns out the man invented the jetpack and isn't a bad guy after all. He takes the biplane up and, in a dazzling display of aerial dexterity, saves Cliff's life by catching him on the wing. He tells Cliff that now they'll do things his way. To that end, he banks the biplane and drops Cliff off over the Locust. Cliff fights the wind to grab a hold of the entrance door, yanking it open with great force. To his surprise, one of the German guards falls out and plummets to his death. Cliff then makes his way into the Locust and to the cockpit, where he is forced into a fight with the pilot who proclaims that either this plane goes back to the fatherland or it goes up in flames, yeah? Cliff punches the pilot and then takes the stick, bringing the Locust down. It ain't pretty, but any landing you can hobble away from, which Cliff duly does before passing out. He awakes in hospital where he learns that Betty has gone to Europe with her photographer. Still under sedation, Cliff stumbles to the lab where the jetpack is being repaired and fueled up and steals it, but in the process knocks over a few chemicals. Still woozy, Cliff hears Peavy and the two men pound on the door outside, but before he can answer, the lab goes boom. 
Believing Cliff to be dead, the two men dropped Peavy off at the airfield and Peavy says he knew all along the man who saved Cliff was Howard Hughes and they are Mayberg Hughes and Noah Dietrich. The two men drive off and Peavy starts to mourn his loss. He thinks he's hearing things when the roar of the bulldog echoes around the field, but when he enters the hangar there is a note from Cliff. He's alive and going after Betty. That ended up being a bit longer than I thought it was going to be. Maybe I should have split it into bits. Yeah. Shouldn't have. Uh, this is set in the same year as Raiders of the Lost Ark. 1938. Alright. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't know. I don't think that it is. <laughs> and, do you know, I, th- I really do want an Indiana Jones Rocketeer team up. Do you? Oh, come on, why, why would that not be cool? How would it work? Well, they're both in 1938. Of course. So, how would it not work? <laughs> See, you're thinking far too linear. You know what, let's just throw the Doctor in there as well, just because he can go to 1938. I'm liking this picture even more. <laughs> which Doctor? Not a witch Doctor, obviously. Of course. But which incarnation of the Doctor would be best suited to the 1938 milieu? I don't know. Paul Tom. McGann. Paul McGann? <laughs> yeah. I could go with Paul McGann. Paul McGann would probably fit in quite well here. Yeah. Victorian refined gentleman. Mm. Yeah, he'd totally work. All right, Paul McGann's doctor, <laughs> Indiana Jones, and the Rocketeer. Get it done. Okay, doke I don't know who owns the rights to the Rocketeer at the minute, but Marvel presumably own Indiana Jones. Yeah. Oh, but they don't own Doctor. Oh, no. IDW do. IDW don't own this anymore, though, do they? Do they not? Do they not own the Rocketeer anymore? I don't know. I don't know either, because they've not done anything with it for a while. Hmm. Kind of implies that they don't. So IDW own the Rocketeer, possibly. Yeah. And they don't own the Doctor any money. Titan own Doctor Who now. Do they? Yeah. Right. So you're looking at three different comic book companies. It ain't going to happen, is it? Unless it's a crossover printed by three different companies in three (laughs) different titles where they never actually meet. Where's the fun in that? I want Indiana Jones to wear the jetpack. <laughs> and I wanted Batman and Batman to meet in Brave and the Bold, but they never did. You don't always get what you want, do you? Exactly. As Mick Jagger once said. But sometimes, you may find, you'll get what you need. And we need this comic. In treasury format. Well, we've got it. It's gorgeous, isn't it? Have they done a treasury for the second part? No, otherwise I'd have it. Right. But they haven't. I was waiting for it before I finally caved and got you all to get me the graphic now. Haven't they done a uh, artist edition? Of the Rocketeer? Yeah. I don't know, have they? I don't know. Because that would probably look quite spectacular. It really would, because the art in this is great. And it's it's not, the, the colouring is really good as well. Laura Martin has done an exceptional job recolouring this. But even without it, the line work looks really good. Yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing a black and white version. Yeah. And seeing what it looked like in black and white. Which is not to take away from Laura Martin's spectacular colouring, as we've mentioned. Um... Starting as we mean to go on, I do like the banner across the top. The year is 1938, and Los Angeles is about to meet the Rocketeer. That's yeah. pretty cool. I like the, the car chase. Yeah. He's holding his hand out on the other side. To do the, the, the jetpack thing, like Spider-Man's foot thing. Yeah. It's quite cool, isn't it? Uh, Cliff's a bit of a jerk, though, as the strip opens. We expect, because we know a little bit about storytelling after four and a half years of doing this show, yeah that Cliff will actually undergo some kind of change as the story goes on. But he doesn't, does he? I quite liked him being a bit like this. What, being a bit of a jerk? Comedy relief. Yeah, but he's the central character. The central character's now supposed to be the comedy relief. That was supposed to be Peavy's job. Peavy's a bit of a... a I don't know. Peavy's the only one in this with his head screwed on, right? Yeah, Peavy's pretty serious in this. We we need Cliff to be the comedy relief. Well, yeah, alright. I mean, ultimately, this isn't really about anything. Yeah. None of the characters change 
because of these events, do they? No. Cliff is as headstrong and stubborn at the beginning of this as he is at the end. I did yeah. I did like the trick that he played on uh, on the owner of the um, Millie, the owner of the diner, where uh, he gets the little lad wearing the cowboy hat to feed him beef jerky because he basically gives him the runs. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, being a jerk, mm. but a funny jerk. So, you know, that's all right. Uh, there's a bit of a Spider-Man vibe to Cliff finding the jetpack, and he instantly thinks he wants to use it to make money. Yeah, that's that's very Spider-Man. And again, there's no, there's never any moment of resolve. There's never a scene where Cliff decides to use the jetpack for good, mm. for any noble reason or anything. He kind of uses it selfishly throughout the entire strip. I like that though. But even at the end when we get to the end where he goes to stop them he's doing that to prove he's not a crook yeah but by proving that he's not a crook he's just stole the jetpack again yeah so I didn't I didn't understand how that actually worked in his head I just I, I liked how he was doing it for the money because it's not serious it's just a fun reason it is a romp isn't it I mean even with the Nazis in it like I say he doesn't do it to stop the Nazis, does he? No. You'd think that would be his reason for doing it at the end. I'm going to stop it because the Nazis. He's doing it for himself, really. Well, it's like in every other story, the power never falls into the hands of someone who's going to do something wrong with it. They all decide to do the just and right thing to do. So I quite like that there's a guy who uses this power for personal gain. But even he's, even then, though, he's not. An, he doesn't turn into an outright crook. No, because he's not a bad guy. He's just a guy. Cliff Seacott, just <laughs> this guy, you know. Yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. It I mean, I would have liked the story arc of some description. I guess. Well, it wasn't like he was. He wanted the money for himself. He did want to spend it on better. Yeah, that's true. I suppose he did want to. I mean, the first scene of the Rocketeer, though, is pretty cool. Hmm where he takes off into the sky. I do like that he's got no idea how it works. Yeah. That's very greatest American hero. Especially later on when we find out there was an instruction booklet that he just didn't bother reading. Mm. <laughs> what a nutter. Uh Yeah, so the, the aerial action scenes are brilliant. I didn't get why he passed out. Going too fast? Was it? Oh, no, he crashes into the wing, uh, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah. does himself some damage, right? Okay, yeah, that actually makes sense. I like the design of the jetpack itself. It's very atomic age. Yes. Yeah, I like the look of that. It's like he has put some thought into, all right, if Howard Hughes designed a jetpack in 1938, what would it look like? Yeah. And it would look like Flash Gordon. Mm. So that's what he's done. He's only got one jet on it here. The movie has two, doesn't it? Yeah. He has two jets in the movie. So they, they modified it slightly, because we've seen that jetpack for real. Now we? Very first time we went to Disneyland, it was in one of the displays. Right. Um, the Rocketeer's jetpack, along with his leather jacket, I think. It's a pretty cool leather jacket. It is. It is great because it's just it's just an aerial flight jacket, isn't it? Yeah. That a lot of flyboys wore at this time. The jetpack's pretty impractical, though. Yeah, wouldn't it burn his ass off? It would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would burn everything off. Yeah, given the where it's positioned and the size of it and the power of it. Yeah. I mean, I don't, yeah, you're probably right. In real life, it would probably. Hurt, but it's not real life. But it's not real life. No, it's just a fun romp. Uh, Betty shows up, and you know she's drawn by Dave Stevens to look like Betty Page, who yeah. in turn looks like Katy Perry. So imagine Katy Perry playing this, <laughs> and you've pretty much got what he draws her to look like, haven't you? Just with a bit more added class. With a bit more class than Katy Perry. Yeah, you're not like Katy Perry. 
I think she seems alright. It's nothing to whether I like her, it's the amount of class she does on her. Alright, fair enough. I, I don't have an opinion of her, she seems nice enough. I do like the way Betty's drawn. Not in that way, but the fact that Dave Stevens goes to extraordinary lengths just to draw her suggestively. <laughs> yes, yeah. Can you imagine people complaining about this? Yeah, I think there's, there's one page later on where she's not even on the page, but he still draws her the full size of the page in quite a suggestive pose. Yeah, everywhere she goes, she just oozes appeal, doesn't she? Mm. Although, why did the pit? Why would the pit crew think Cliff was a pansy? I don't know. I didn't get that. Why? What? What would he have done to give them that impression? Given that his his entire everything he does in this story is motivated by better. Yeah. Not really. Yeah, I mean, I said earlier he does it for selfish means, but he really does it to impress her. Hmm. He doesn't really do it for himself. And I don't. I wasn't figuring out exactly how he was going to make money with the rocket engine. Was he just going to hire himself out to her shows? Yeah. Did he not think about knocking over a bank? He says that, doesn't he? That he's just going to. Yeah, yeah. He's just, that's what. But he never. Th- it never even crossed his mind to rob a bank. Which actually says a lot about him as a person. Yeah. That that, that was never a consideration. He's going to earn it with a jetpack. He's not going to take it. Yeah, but he's still stealing the jetpack. <laughs> he didn't steal it. He just stumbled on it. Mm. It does seem a little odd as well that Cliff spends this entire story fighting the good guys. Yeah. Doesn't he? He's an independent person. Yeah. Because the guy that he fights here at the beginning of chapter three we're at now, Cliff's passed out in the cardboard boxes. The guy that he fights here ends up being a fed. Yeah. Who is after the jetpack at the behest of Howard Hughes. Mm. He spends three quarters of this book fighting good guys who are just trying to get the jetpack back. Yeah. So basically, he's the bad guy in this story. They're, all they're trying to do is retrieve their own property. Yeah. I mean, at this point, they don't even know the Nazis are after it, do they? Mm. Uh, they don't no. find that out till the end of the next chapter. Because it's the car crash here. Yeah. Where they find out the Nazis Where are after find him. out the Nazis are after him, yeah. Uh... There's absolutely no reason as well for Cliff to not just turn the jetpack over to the authorities in Chapter 3. Yeah. It's given him nothing but grief. He knows the feds are after it. He knows the Nazis are after it. The smart thing to do would be give it back to them. Maybe he likes the excitement. Well, yeah, this is one thing Cliff isn't. It's smart. Yeah. Because he's not depicted as being very bright throughout this entire story, is he? Mm. He's a bit... um, in the way that, you know, he, he has to be intelligent to be a pilot. Yeah. But, but there's... Because you're intelligent doesn't mean you're smart. Yeah, his common sense is lacking. Yeah. Even though he's, he's obviously quite intelligent. Why did the Nazis grab better? What was the reason for grabbing better? It's a pulp story. Why was Betty still there in the morning? She does not spend the night with Cliff because she's wearing different clothes. Y- yeah. So she's gone home, come back the next day, and the Nazis have just grabbed her. She's come back to be kidnapped because it needs a damsel in distress. Right, so they knew she was after Cliff's e-code. Right. Betty was in Cliff's hangar, so they just took her. Yeah. She could have been the cleaner. Even the cleaners, no intel. <laughs> Looking like that, it's unlikely that she's the cleaner. Enough bamboo shoots under fingernails, you'll get any information <coughs> you want out of those cleaners. Alright, okay, fair enough. That just didn't make much sense to me. Lovely little action beat, though. <laughs> bottom left panel. Oh, right. Goes back to what I was saying before about Dave Stevens going out of his way. It's to a drawer and suggesting. Well, he's got her in bondage here. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that's just coincidence. Of course. I'm absolutely positive. Because even bondaged up, she managed to, to give a good fight. She yeah. kicks that Nazi guy in the face. It's like she's sexualised, but she's not objectified. Yeah, alright. So, yeah, well, there's your difference. There's nothing. We are like a good, sexy woman. Just mm-hmm. like women like a good sexy man. 
Yep. There's, but uh, if they're a person, then there's nothing to complain about. No, that's true. And, you know, bondage and showing her stockings. Yep. <laughs> what did you really want to draw, Dave? <laughs> did you want to draw the Rocketeer or did you just want to draw Betty Page? <laughs> let's, you know, let's be honest. Why can't you draw both? Um, I do like what's it. I love the German dialogue when... Uh, Cliff manages to break... He, he takes the snub plane, he smashes the wheels into the front of the, the glass of the car that they've got Betty in, and you've got the wonderful German... I have glass in my eye! <laughs> <laughs> oh, caricatures. Yep. It's funny, though, isn't it? <laughs> really, really funny. Racial stereotypes. Is there anything funnier? Oh, not when it's the Nazis perfectly acceptable when you're taking the mick out of the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody would have a problem with mocking Nazis. Would they? <laughs> I can't decide as well if having the good guys just chase Cliff throughout the entire story is a good idea or not. Because it means everything that Cliff does is an actionable offence. Um, I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no debate about that, yeah. But if, if for it to be part of the story, I like that he's independent, he's got two sides after him. Yeah. Even though he's not really aware of what's going on. Yeah, he doesn't know that there are two sides after him. No, he's, he's largely clueless throughout the entire story, isn't he? Yeah. Rather feckless throughout the whole thing. I like that Peavy's the one that points out to him there was an instruction manual, moron. Yeah. She said, well, how about you actually read every now and again instead of just jumping in feet first? And I like how Peavy's obsessed with fins. Yeah. Well, he's actually right. He makes it more aerodynamic. Yeah, as well. and I like his, his helmet helps him fly because of the fin on it. Yeah. It's aerodynamic. Well, and he mentions later on that when the feds come to pick it back up, they're actually like, hey, those fins are a good idea. Yeah. So you always got the impression that if the strip would have evolved or carried on or whatever, he'd have ended up working for Howard Hughes. Yeah. Or Howard would have bought his, uh, his money off him. And because Stevens ties this into real life, Howard Hughes is a real guy who is the developer of the jetpack in the story. Uh, when real-life employer Noah Dietrich and his chum bursting on Betty in the middle of a nude pictorial, that panel at the bottom of the next page where she sat on the... Is it a bed? Or is it just a table covered with, with drapes or something? I don't know. I don't know. It could be the concert. That panel, though, they covered her, her, her rather shapely bottom right. up with an extra blanket. Fair enough. But they fixed it for, for all the, the subsequent re, reprintings. In the treasury, it's uh, in full glorious double size yep. and well coloured in all its shapely glory <laughs> for you to ogle all day long if that's the way you are so inclined. I do like as well, she's not wearing anything apart from a pair of high heels and some um, them gloves that go all the way yeah. up your arms for this shoot that she's doing with this guy. I don't know how she thinks this is going to get her in Hollywood, but alright, whatever. Marilyn Monroe, it was good enough for her. Okay. When she stands up, she covers herself with the smallest towel yep. you have ever seen, which is brilliant because it reminds me of that James Bond bit. Do you remember that in the Sean Connery? It's a Sean Connery one. Oh, and he's only got like the handcloth or something. He, but yeah, he goes into the room, she's in the bath, can you pass me something to wear? And he gives her a hand towel. Yeah. <laughs> funny. <laughs> but I like that. I thought that was quite funny. And you know, I'm not going to lie, it's not unpleasant to see Betty in the buff, is it? Whilst I can buy that Cliff is too stupid to think about fueling up the jetpack, which is what they say at the end, I didn't think Peavy was that dumb. No. I thought Peavy was more inclined to go, oh, yeah, 
maybe we should have checked that it was fuel because it's a jet engine surely it runs on fuel peeve yeah the Locust though is a really cool plane yes is it real I don't know because it is a cool looking plane isn't it, it is. I presume it's got some basis in reality yeah yeah with it being um, Dave Stevens was, I think he was into his aviation wasn't he mm. and everything else feels real yeah. Even the jetpack, like you say, looks like it could have been really made in this time period, even though its actual workings is pure science fiction. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. And even if it was only, like, an experimental but failed plane, it still looks like it belongs. Yeah. It, uh, and it does look really, really cool. It is actually really good. Did remind me a little bit of the plane in Raiders, though. You mean this whole thing evoked Raiders? <laughs> really? Yeah. I wonder where you got that idea from. Um... The ending cliff is saved by Howard Hughes, and the aerial acrobatics are brilliant. I do think it's a bit of a misstep that the end of the Rocketeer doesn't actually have Cliff do anything with the rock, with the jetpack. Mm. It's out of fuel, so he doesn't do anything. Although he gets to the plane by dumb luck as well as judgment. Yeah, he opens the door, and the Nazi guy falls out the door, and he doesn't know what he did. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a brilliant though, Cliff's like, oh, yeah, I hope that wasn't a pilot. <laughs> but my thinking there was, well, what if it was? You're a pilot, dude. It's yeah. just made your life a little bit easier if that was the pilot. I guess he won't know how to fly this. I'm sure he could figure it out. He's figured out this jetpack. Kind of. Two buttons on the jetpack, though. It's there like, is. Yeah, but he's a pilot. It's a, Yeah, but... How different is planes? Well, okay, airline pilots go through a three-month course, right, to yeah. learn how to play pilot. Concorde pilots, it was a six-month course. Right, why? Is, there, is it a lot different than a Concorde? Because the Concorde travelled at uh, two times faster than the speed of sound. Right. And it was, the, I think, but I'm not entirely sure, it was the closest you could fly to space. Right, okay, fair enough. Alright, I'll, I, will, I will defer to your judgement, though, that maybe Cliff would have thought he was a bit out of his league. Um, Betty just lounges around her own house wearing a see-through negligee. Because she can? Cause, because I'm female. The kind men like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's not, not wearing much taller. I really didn't like Betty when she had dialogue. Sexist... <laughs> <laughs> you sexist pig! I, I was only joking, but... <laughs> yeah, were, were you? Really? Yeah, yeah, because she does seem like she's only there for it to be the... She's very, very badly written. She's very unlikable. Like, because she does things... Like, essentially, she... I'm not sure if she is cheating on uh, Cliff. I don't think she is, because it doesn't seem like she's putting out for Cliff. So she seems like she's, she's, she's not what you're thinking she may be. Yeah, no, but she's in a relationship with Cliff. But she's also in cahoots with... The photographer guy. Yeah, only because the photographer guy can put her on the career path she wants to be on. It's made quite clear in the next story that, that he's is... not got anywhere with her. Yeah, but at the same time with that, she's just left Cliff for this photographer yeah. in, in hopes of getting a job without saying anything. So she does quite unlikable things, Yes, but then blames it all on Cliff when he's going through all these lengths... Just to earn enough money to impress her? Yeah, she's a very, very underwritten character. Yeah. And it is one thing the film did improve on drastically. Yeah. I didn't like them changing the name. So, I did say earlier that it's, um, sex. It's sex, yes. No, I forgot the word. What? Uh, she, I did say earlier that she's sexified. Sexified. Objectif- not objectified. But she's not objectified. She's sexy, but not objectified. Sexualised, yes, that's the word, that's but not the objectified. But she's... 
poorly she, written that she might as well just be objectified. Yeah, she is very underwritten as a character. Yeah. She is, though, just so J.F. Stevens can draw a couple of panels of a na- nearly nude woman. Just do a pin-up strip, mate. <laughs> and then and then get back to the... I know, but we're reading this adventure strip. We're guys, you know, <laughs> we like a little bit of woman's clothes falling off every now and again. Oh. Like I'm not saying we're enlightened. Do a pin-up in the middle of every chapter. Just whatever. <laughs> At the end of every win. chapter, just draw a pin-up of Betty. Yeah. Why the story was going on, Betty had this photo taken. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's have a separate release, which was all the photos she took. And that would give you a release. <laughs> Lines on paper, dude. Yeah. Although yeah. Betty Page was real, mm-hmm. if you look her up. She was actually a real 1940s glamour model. Cliff lands the plane. In the middle of the street, which is a brilliant little action beat. Yeah. Um, very similar to airplane. When they crash <laughs> into the window of the uh, the airport lounge. But then Cliff's in bed ill at the end of it. And to prove that he's not a bad guy, he steals the jetpack again. Mm. Is this the third time that he's stole it the jetpack? It might be the second. Is it really? Yeah. Alright, because he's never actually given it back yet. No. So this is only the second time that he's stolen. Yeah. All right. Fair. I like that he thinks as well. He, he, he really? No, he doesn't think. <laughs> he just acts. So he gets up and he's still drugged up. Yeah. So he does. He, he he does all this. He tries to escape, but he can't. Yeah. Well, how did he get out of this explosion at the end? Because uh, he ducks he... behind a desk. Did he really? <laughs> yeah. He ducks behind a desk, even though the explosion blows the doors off the place. Yeah. Where did he go? Did he get out that window behind it? Must have done. Did he manage oh, to get out the window? There is a big hole in the wall, so he could have just walked out there. What, what after he's been blown up? <laughs> oh, a, a mere scratch. <laughs> yeah. He's wearing a helmet. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. Right. What about the rest of him, though? Yeah, true. Yeah. I didn't quite get the ending. Where I, I know this is all my fault for not knowing who they were, but I didn't know who the two guys were that PV says he knew who they were uh, well Noah Dietrich was Howard Hughes' right hand man right until they had a um, a major tussle and okay. fell out with each other Dietrich largely just wanted to it was Johnny Marr and Morrissey right Dietrich just wanted some time off he wanted a holiday he wanted time with his family and Hughes yeah. just wouldn't let him because he was just too valuable to him to the point where he just eventually walked right. but Howard Hughes is a real bloke Howard Hughes is in the film right Howard Hughes designed the jetpack in the film he's played by Oh, the guy from Lost, Terry Qu- Terry O'Quinn. Okay, he's played by Terry O'Quinn from Lost. So these these are real people. Mm. You look them up. They're in. I don't think Dietrich's in the Howard Hughes story very much. You know the Ca- the Caprio one, the Aviator. Yeah, I think he gets short shrift in that. But he wrote a book about his time with Howard Hughes. So they they both were genuinely real people. Right. Uh, what I'm about to say comes from love. I adore the Rocketeer. Mm. I adore Dave Stevens' artwork. I love the crisp, clean style. I adore his gorgeous rendition of the female form. I covet his artistic ability. I mourn that such a colossal talent was taken from us at such a young age. And I genuinely believe this to be a genuine work of artistic genius. It's one of the pinnacles of comic book art, a true original, despite its origins, and a must-read comic for every fan of adventure strips. The period is evoked beautifully in a series of truly exceptional pages, and it serves as a love letter not only to the comic's form, 
but also to a now bygone age. It doesn't matter that this is an idealised 1930s, a full-colour pulp adventure strip through a Frank Capra lens. This is simply beautifully realised and a gorgeously rendered piece of comic art. And yet, as a story complete and unto itself, it feels very much like what it is. A series of chapters written over a number of months with no clear through line. The action all takes place in the opening chapters. The final action scene is actually a bit of a damp squib, as Cliff never uses the jetpack. The final chapter must have influenced Superman Returns, as Cliff spends most of it in bed. The Howard Hughes reveal is thrown away, the outstanding plot elements are dispensed with too easily, and we never are told exactly how Cliff survives the big explosion. Cliff frequently comes across as a bit of a jerk, and Betty is nothing but cheesecake eye candy. I have no problem with cheesecake eye candy. The TV show Spartacus featured an awful lot of it. But the women in Spartacus served a purpose and were integral to the plot, and were living, breathing characters who just happen to have their clothes fall off every five minutes. Both Betty and Cliff aren't really fleshed out in any decent way. Cliff is headstrong, but frequently dim. Betty is the girlfriend. Only Peavy comes across as a likeable and relatable character. Even the villains aren't really that threatening or memorable. I mean, I know it seems like I'm slaying a, a sacred cow when I say all this, as I really do love this. I think it's a brilliant comic book, but that's largely due to its feel and tone and the look of the strip and the superb artwork and the fact that this treasury is gorgeous also helps. But as a coherent narrative, it doesn't really work. The film did it better. What do you think? I, I don't know. I, I, thought, <laughs> I, I don't know. didn't have any problems with it. Uh, Mabel, that's the problem when you look at something for something like this, isn't it? Are you looking for problems? No. I just... No, I meant generally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I just read it and I enjoyed it. I like the time period. Mm. I like the... the I, I like planes. I like pulp stories. I like women. I, I'm, I'm with you on every <laughs> one like of these everything. things. I like everything. And... Um, it's, I thought it was just great. I thought the, the art's excellent in oh, it as well. It's gorgeous to look at. I but, really do heartily encourage you, lovely listener, if you can find this treasury, pick it up. Yeah. It's not expensive. I got this for a fiver, I think. But I just didn't... I, I thought it was actually pretty decently paced. Even for a serial. And See, mate, that's the maybe. I'm just being a bit too hard on it. Well, maybe you would be more hard on it because, well, you've liked it longer yeah. than I have. But... Yeah, I thought it was really well paced. I, just, I didn't have a problem with him being... No, you've just been looking at this treasury all week, going, are we covering this? Are we yeah, doing this? Yeah. When are we doing this? When can I read this? You can I, read it whenever you want. Yeah, but I, I didn't have any problems with the pacing. I didn't have any problem with him not using the jetpack at the end. Right. Because... All right, maybe I'm just seeing problems where there are none, because it is beautiful. Yeah. But, you know, your story shouldn't rely on the artwork. I know, but when the artwork is this gorgeous... I know, I know. ...that it carries everything else. I think maybe we're both right. I think maybe I am looking too hard at it because for the purposes of doing a show. But I think it is fair criticism to say that the art and period detail and just the sheer joy of it mm. papers over any of the cracks. Yeah. That um, maybe Dave Stevens wasn't a brilliant writer. There's a lot of 
detail into just throwaway things like the guns and the planes. Mm. Oh yeah, he's put a lot. There's a lot of attention to detail into it, isn't it? Like there? even if they they don't exist, they feel real. Yeah, and I don't think this has ever looked better than it does here. Mm. Even in the the hardcover deluxe edition, it's not as big as this. Yeah. I think this treasury is absolutely gorgeous. Sure, Cliff's New York Adventure's not a part of it. And neither are the extras from the deluxe edition. But on the plus side... Yeah? Harlan Ellison's putrid diatribe about how much smarter he is than you isn't included here either. So, does that... (laughs) That's a positive. Okay. If you just want to read this, if you just want to give it a go, if you've never read The Rocketeer before, this is the version to pick up. Because at $9.99... Like I said, I got it for five, six quid. I think this may be the cheapest way of finding it as well. Yeah. Your trades are all going to be more expensive than this, but this this treasury is just... It is gorgeous, isn't it? Mm. I wish they'd done more of the. I wish DC and Marvel would do these again. Because this is just fantastic. Can you imagine the, the death of Superman, the, the 1960s one? Yeah. The 90s one. In this oversized format, recoloured mm. like this. That'd be brilliant, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because that's fantastic. Anyway, we have to go to the regular trade paperback. It's the way I read it. For the sequel, Cliff's New York Adventure. Which picks up exactly where the earlier story left off. Cliff is flying to New York in the Bulldog, and after a stop-off for fuel, he makes contact with an old friend, Goose Gander, who has a line on a job for Cliff. Cliff isn't interested, he just wants to find Betty. Goose says he'll help with that if Cliff reconsiders the job offer later. They hit all the clubs in New York, and with but two left, they find Betty at the El Morocco with Marco Vich, who is already tiring of Betty not putting out. When Cliff gets to Betty, Marco puts the beat down on Cliff, but before it becomes worse, a man called Jonas interrupts, telling Marco he is aware that he preys on naive young women, and that he's watching him. He helps Cliff out and into a cab, saying the job offer is still on the table, but Cliff is angry and lashes out at both Jonas and Betty. As Goose drives away, Betty asks Jonas to give Cliff the job. Don't worry, Jonas replies. I'll be sticking to him like a shadow. See what I did it, though. The next day, Cliff thinks he sees Betty leave, but she has, in fact, boarded a flight back to L.A. He agrees to meet with Jonas in a darkened, shadowy hangar where Jonas just appears, startling Cliff. And that was the end of the first part of Cliff's New York adventure. It's not the greatest cliffhanger in the world to be honest, but it does at least flesh out the characters more than the first chapter did. And it helps that we see that Betty is being played by Marco. He wasn't really much of anything. I mean, Cliff said he didn't like it. Yeah. But there was the implication there that Cliff didn't like him because he was taking nudie pictures of his girlfriend. Yes. So, but here, we find out that he's a bit of a serial abuser. Well, does it make things better? Because if anything, it kind of makes Betty look like a worse person than she already did. No, because she doesn't know. I guess. She doesn't know that this is what he does. Yeah. Whereas the shadow knows. Mm-hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. I did I did like how um, blatant the reveal <laughs> was. Yeah. Whereas it's a bit later on, isn't it? We find out that the guy, he's clearly the shadow. Yeah. Isn't he? It's, it's the nose. Yes, it's the nose that gives you... I mean, you couldn't call him Lamont Cranston yeah. or any of the other aliases that the shadow had. But this is clearly the shadow. Yes, because you never see him with the um, the scarf. Obviously, because yeah. he didn't own the rights to the shadow. Right. Have they not done a shadow Rocketeer cross- crossover at this point? I don't know. Because surely 
well, Dynamite owned the shadow for a while, yeah. didn't they? So this was a crossover without the characters crossing over. Yes. For all intents and purposes, this isn't the shadow, well, is it? That's exactly the way to get around our Rocketeer, Indiana Jones, the Doctor <laughs> crossover. You never refer to him as the Doctor. Or Indiana Jones. And you refer to Indiana Jones as... Idaho. Or, or the, the um, archaeologist. Oh, right. The okay, archaeologist right. and Doctor Doctor. <laughs> well, that's song. Maybe not. Maybe not that song. I was feeling so bad. Asked my friendly doctor just what I had. I said, Doctor, Mr. MD, Doctor. Now, or you could call him Witch Doctor, and then you'd be a Witch Doctor, but you'd be saying Witch Doctor all the time instead yeah. of Doctor Who. Hmm? Yeah, you and could, every you panel could. he was a different Doctor as well. You could totally milk that gag. Yes, you could. Uh, the period setting's just as good. He gets to play in New York rather than in LA. Yeah. So that's just as pleasant. He does pay, play Marco, sorry, as being much bigger scumbag mm. in this story than in the last one. He didn't really play a part in the last one, he, did he? He did kind of... His seediness was there in the first part. It's just here, it's confirmed. Here we find out that he's he's been doing this quite a lot, yeah. Um, last issue, it seemed that Cliff was just being fueled by jealousy. Whereas here we actually do find that Marco doing this, there's a good reason for his jealousy. Yeah. So that kind of plays in. And very little action. Decent setter, though. Cliff gets beaten up again. Mm-hmm. He's, not very, he's worse than Indiana Jones, isn't he? Yep. For getting his head handed to him. And uh, Jonas. Do you think he's meant to be the shadow? <laughs> very possibly. Yeah, this is the panel that Michael was talking about earlier on. There's a page at the back end that ostensibly Betty's not even a part of. No. But there's a full page shot of her in a very clingy purple dress that leaves absolutely nothing to the imagination, highlighting her shapely thighs, bosom and bottom. Yep. And that's just there, isn't it? For no reason. Yeah. Other than Dave Stevens went, you know, I think I fancy drawing Betty's ass. It's the size of the page as well. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, for, for a play, if that's what he wanted to draw. I guess, yeah. I like Goose. I like that his name's Goose when you find out later that his name's Gander. Yeah. I just groaned at that. <laughs> it was funny. Yeah. But it was a uh, very groan worthy. Love the bit in the hangar where Cliff lights the match. There's no lights on, so he lights a match so he can see. And um, the shadow just appears. It's just the. Yeah. <laughs> very funny. And offers him a donut, which is very nice of him. I liked him. I want to see more of that character. I wonder where I could read more about it. Or listen to more about it. No, I wouldn't. The second chapter is called Nightmare at Large and sees Jonas hire Cliff for a dangerous mission. He is to meet with an operative of Jonas at a gangland bar in the Bowery and then locate room 1305 and find any information that will lead Jonas to whoever the occupant was. The contact is attacked by somebody who looks exactly like him and Cliff uses the opportunity to fly away to search the room. By a staggering coincidence, Cliff recognises a picture in the room as Tina, somebody who worked with back when he was in a carny troop ten years earlier. The contact arrives and is revealed to be Jonas, who tells Cliff that every member of the troop has been killed, their spines snapped, except Cliff. Cliff says there's one other person not in the photo, Orsino, the escape king. Jonas says he'll hold off the men who are now banging at the door, whilst Cliff and Gander find Orsino. Cliff rockets out of the window and hooks up on Gander's plane, saying that Orsino must be in town or the killer wouldn't be in New York. Gander somehow learns that Orsino's playing at Atlantic City, and they jet over there, but it may be too late. 
Orsino gives his performance and asks the audience for a volunteer, and a large, misshapen man steps up. Right, so we had the shadow last time. Is this supposed to be Mandrake the Magician? I don't know. <laughs> I think it is. Okay. I think this clearly supposed So well before Alan Moore did it, you know, the brilliant Alan Moore, who's startlingly original, and yeah, yeah. who we break our arms patting ourselves on the back at how magnificent he is, Dave Stevens did it first. Mm-hmm. He teamed up the Rocketeer, the Shadow, and Mandrake the Magician in a comic long before there was the League of Gentlemen. And I'm pretty sure the Invisible Man's in it somewhere. <laughs> He can't prove he isn't. He can't prove that he isn't, no. Uh, The chapter's again gorgeous to look at. The plot takes a little bit of swallowing. Right. This one's... It goes the opposite way from the first one, in that this one's very convoluted. It's a massive coincidence that Cliff should happen into New York just as this killer is bumping off all the old members of his carny troop. It's an even bigger coincidence that Cliff's old friend Goose should be working with the man who's investigating the murders and that that man would know the photographer who is wooing Betty. Mm. This, this is a massive level of coincidence, isn't it? Yeah. John Byrne's head would explode <laughs> at this level of coincidence. I mean, it's Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And this level of coincidence happens all the time in comic book stories and Pulp Fiction... So, you know, if you can swallow that, if you can accept that, there's a, a ton of stuff to love about this. Uh, it, the period setting's great. Jonas clearly is the shadow. Orsino's clearly Mandrake the Magician. And I'm just waiting for Philip Marlowe and Doc Savage to show up. <laughs> I don't think they do. No. Which I'm quite saddened by. The art beautifully evokes the period. And there are some really dazzling aerial shots of Cliff zooming around 30s New York. I particularly like that shot on the top of page 109. Where it's one of one of those like Superman-esque shots where you're looking down into the, the canyons of New York, the buildings, the skyscrapers, but you're looking down on Cliff, yeah. who is then looking down on what he's flying over. And that's an absolutely beautiful panel. I am, And again, when they actually get to the theatre, that's a great panel as well. This guy, the bad guy, mm-hmm. they've perfectly recreated him for the film. Right. With makeup. Yeah, and he's uh, he's he's really well done. Absolutely great. What do you think of that one? Um, I don't know actually. I didn't like this story as much as I liked the first one. Why not? It was still good. Yeah, but I thought the first one was so much of a love letter to like plays and pulp fiction the 30s. and aviation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that this one lacked. So yeah, this one's a, a seedy murder mystery. Yeah, so. Everything that I loved about the first one was taken away in the second one. Yeah, arguably this one's crime pulp fiction. Yeah. Isn't it? Rather than adventure pulp fiction. Mm. The Rocketeer of the first chapter would have been at home with Flash Gordon and Butt Rogers. Yeah. Whereas this is very definitely The Shadow and Philip Marlowe. Yeah. Isn't it? That's not to say it's bad, it's just no, different... No. Yeah, it's two different sides of the pulps yeah. of the 1940s pulp stories. There was your bright and shiny science fiction stuff, and then there's your crime drama stuff. Mm. And essentially he's put the Rocketeer in both those kinds of stories. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, th- there's nothing bad about it. I didn't not like it, but I didn't like it as much as the first one. Yeah, well, no, that's fair enough. 
The final chapter, Death Stalks the Midway, has Cliff and Goose arrive just in time to prevent the large misshapen man from making mincemeat of Orsino. He turns to tackle Cliff, but Cliff runs up into the gantry. The misshapen man, who Cliff recognises as Lothar, climbs the ropes to follow, but Orsino slices them with a sword, and Lothar, weighted down by the heavy bag from the lighting, plummets through the floor of the pier and into the water, sinking to the bottom. Cliff hooks up with Orsino and they tell Goose what's occurring. Back in 1928, Tina was one of the sideshow midgets with a huge crush on Cliff. Cliff only had eyes for Ruby, a hot redhead, and Lothar was attracted to Tina. When Cliff stands Tina up for a date and nearly misses a gig due to being with Ruby, Tina steps in. Cliff has done the underwater coffin gag many times with Orsino, and Tina watched every time. She knew the gag. Lothar felt that this was a bad idea, but Tina talked him around. However, Tina's tiny lungs can't hold as much air as Cliff, something they failed to take into consideration. And when they pull Tina out, she's already drowned. Lothar snaps, blaming all the troop, and turns to kill the recently arrived Cliff. Three carnies pull him off, one of whom he kills, and Lothar goes to jail because of it. Now he's out, and seeking vengeance. Orsino mourns Tina slightly, but feeling life goes on, talks Goose and Cliff into picking up some dates and hitting the fur. On the House of Death ride, Cliff isn't feeling it, still pining for betting, but his whining doesn't get him far as Lothar appears from the depths and pulls Cliff in, seemingly killing him. He is flushed out, but comes to as Lothar tackles the others, setting fire to the ride and trapping them inside. Cliff grabs the jetpack and flies in to help. Goose manages to get the girls to safety, whilst Lothar tackles Orsino, but Cliff intervenes. Lothar gains the upper hand due to brute strength, but Orsino steps in. Cliff fires the jetpack, setting Lothar afire and flying both of them up through the roof. Lothar is about to drag Cliff down with him when a shadowy figure pulls Lothar off Cliff and drags him down into the flames. Cliff is pretty sure it was Jonas. The next day, Cliff packs to return home, and Goose explains that he saw Cliff in the picture, and figured he needed to get him on side before he was killed. Cliff says to thank Jonas, and sends a telegram to Peavy to say he's returning home. Back at home, Betty arrives to talk to Cliff about their relationship. Such as it is. Which gives Dave Stevens a chance to draw a full-page shot of Betty wearing... Whatever the hell that is that she's wearing. Yeah. What is that? I don't know. It's like... It's like one of those tops that goes over the shoulder and over the boobs but burrs the shoulders and the midriff. And then she's got like a pair of high-waisted shorts on but the not shorts, the knickers. Yeah. Who told her that was a good look? What's wrong with a skirt, Betty, love? Was that not the style? I don't think anybody wore that in 1938, did they? Maybe if you were a chorus girl. Shows a bit more than the ankle. Just a little bit, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I mean, she looks lovely. (laughs) But that outfit, just... No, I I don't think she could could be wearing that. Tina's death's actually quite sad. Yeah. And beautifully drawn. Mm. I mean, I think um, the Flash producers... What were their names? DeMio. Danny Bilson and Paul DeMio. I think they do get thanked at the beginning. Oh, yeah, co-writers on Chapters 2 and 3, Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo, right. who did the Flash TV series and also wrote the film, co-wrote this. So that may explain why it's a bit more plot-heavy than the other one. The art's absolutely brilliant, although there's a lot of misdirection in it. Yeah. You think that Lothar's dead, and then he's not dead, and then you think that Cliff's dead, and then he's not dead. So they've killed Cliff twice. 
Yeah. Essentially, in each storyline. But Tina's, Tina's story is really rather sad. Yeah. Although, I'll be honest, the the redhead Ruby in the uh, the carnival, she's hot. <laughs> I think she's hotter than better. Okay. But that may just be me. But Tina's lovely. And what happens to the panel where they bring a dead body out and the Grim Reaper is stood behind him? It's brilliant, isn't it? Mm. Because Thingyo, isn't he dressed up? He's dressed up as the Reaper for a gag that he's doing. Yeah. So that Lothar is dressed up like that. So it gives it... It's really weird to see the Grim Reaper, though, as they're bringing this dead body out. Yeah. And it, 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 I felt a bit sorry for her. And the other attraction yeah. is definitely... Uh, Ruby. Ruby's the other attraction. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, no, it's it's after this. Yeah. When when they tell when they say that Tina can do the stunt. Yeah. I can't remember what movie it is, but that's very definitely from it. Well, it's a bunch of little people from isn't it not a homage to Thingy or Freaks? Yeah. Um, that's it. What's his name? Todd Browning? Todd Browning's film Freaks that was also nineteen thirty eight? Was it? And banned? I, I think it? it might have been banned. May have been the forties. But I know Del Toro's got a life-size wax statue of that in his other house. Has he? Well, these are all characters that were in um, American Horror Story last season as well, aren't they? Right. That your mum watches. So that was set at a carnival for the dog-faced boy and all of that. So yeah, so he's obviously homaging freaks there as well from from Todd Brown. The art's very, very good. I think the art may actually be better than the first chapter. Hmm. In some places. It seems a bit more... Oh, I don't want to say more detail. Can you get more detailed <laughs> than what Dave Stevens is? The Rocketeer shots are lovely. I mean, it, I like that the helmet is still damaged. Yeah. From last time. He's not had PV fix the eyepieces or something. Although it looks fine, though. Yeah. So, you know. Maybe that's because they, they wanted to use that for... Uh, promotion. Cover or promotion or something, yeah. Goose does have an explanation. Uh, that attempts to explain away the coincidences, but it never manages to comfortably explain how Goose knew that Cliff was coming to New York. Yeah. That's just coincidence. And Maybe they would have gone over to him. Yeah. I love the shadow just appearing from... Oh, he's not the shadow, is he? No. I love that guy <laughs> appearing out of the flames, pulling Lothar down, and then the next thing we see is just stood at the bottom, and he just says, Until we meet again, eh? Mm. It's Canadian now. <laughs> Apparently. I love that. Mm. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Still, you know, the action covers the plot holes and it's beautiful to look at because the art's brilliant and I wish they'd do a treasury edition of this as well because mm. I would buy it because it's brilliant. What did you think of it? It was fun. Yes. The, yeah, and the art's great. It's just like I said earlier. You didn't think it was as good as the first one? And another problem I had with it was... I wouldn't say problem, but it doesn't end. No, it doesn't. It doesn't end. Um... There's a lot of promotional material in that this is now the Rocketeer by Dave Stevens, the Complete Adventures trade paperback, which Angela bought me for our anniversary. So this has all the covers of the other stuff. So as you can, there's the splash page of the Treasury is here, but with the top cover left alone. Yeah. The back cover of the Treasury and the front cover of the Treasury here and all the other covers, one of which has some Steve Ditko art on it because uh, Ditko's stuff was a back. That painted one's great. The painted one was the original Rocketeer graphic novel collection, which, yeah, is really, really good. And then the back of it, it has a couple of extra promo pieces. The Rocketeer responds with the letters page and Cliff's New York Adventure graphic novel and Rocketeer Adventure magazine. Um, And there's even some stuff here. That's not Dave Stevens, is it? 
Oh, Dave Dorman's painted over it. So Dave Stevens has penciled it, and Dave Dorman's painted over it afterwards because they're really, they're really, really, right, really quite good. Yeah. Yes. I want more of it. <laughs> there is no more of it and ultimately I think that's what makes Dave Stevens' work on the Rocketeer so memorable the fact that not only the passion mm. that he obviously clearly put into every page but the fact that there's so little of it there's barely 150 pages of Rocketeer art produced by Dave Stevens in his lifetime but as with all truly great art it isn't the quantity but the quality the Rocketeer may live on in other adventures by other creators, but Dave Stevens' true legacy, the real Rocketeer, lies in these two stories. Every line, every beautifully rendered vehicle, every gorgeously detailed description of every character, it lives and it breathes. Dave Stevens died of leukemia at only 54 years of age, but the Rocketeer will live forever in the hearts of readers who love during do, adventurous pulps and gorgeous women. And really, isn't that all of us? Mm-hmm. It's worth doing that, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, we will be looking at, a.k.a. Jessica Jones. Not the series, but the comic book series Alias by Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Gaydos that has preceded what will be the next Netflix Marvel series. We're going to cover all 28 issues in one show. So that'll be fun to see if we can keep that one to 90 minutes. It will. (laughs) See you next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us, as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. 